Please take a copy of God's word and turn to Genesis chapter one, the opening pages of scripture. Um, not to be too cute, but if you're using one of the pew Bibles, turn to page one. We're going to spend a uh, few weeks looking at Genesis. My intention is not to go through all 50 chapters. Uh, not now, not this year, but uh, maybe someday. But uh, thought it would be good to look at a section of scripture that we haven't looked at before, which has uh, numerous implications for us. The book of beginnings, book of Genesis. Let's, let's look now at God's word. We'll read chapter one, verse one through chapter two, verse three. Hear now God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. <clears throat> In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together. He called seas and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Let's ask his blessing now as we consider his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good. What you do is good and what you say to us is good. So Father, give us ears to hear all that you have to say to us. Give us hearts that are ready to respond. Speak to us, Lord, for your servants are listening. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. On the seventh day, God rested, and you might say, God dropped the mic. I, I don't mean that literally, but some of you don't know that phrase. See, dropping the mic is, first of all, something you should never do, which the sound people will probably appreciate me saying. But it is a bold, confident gesture that musicians or others might do, literally, at the end of a performance to signal triumph, as if there's nothing more to do, nothing more to say, nothing more to do. Now, of course, even when God rested, he was still upholding the world by the word of his power. His providence was still sustaining the universe. But after day six was done, after good gave way to very good, then God rested. God ceased creating. Now, thousands of pages have been spent writing about the significance of God's rest. The book of Hebrews will say it's a symbol of the eternal Sabbath rest that we will enter when we reach the true promised land. But we'll have to leave some of the finer details of the significance of God's rest for a little bit later. Our goal today is to take in the sweeping majesty of God's grand creation. Six points today for the six days of creation. God is creator. He's Trinitarian. He's extraordinary. He's a detailed designer. He's a delegator and God is good. He's good. Another way to say all that in creation, God shows us his infinite goodness, his Trinitarian love, his exquisite brilliance, his detailed intentionality, his gracious esteem of humanity and his sheer goodness. Back to the top point. Number one, God is creator. He's our creator. He's our creator, so he challenges all of our worldviews with his infinite wisdom. What do I mean? Verse 1, in the beginning, God created. Just five English words, three in Hebrew. God challenges all of our worldviews with those simple words. 
worldview. You might not know that phrase, our view of the world, our interpretive grid, our personal theory of everything, how we make sense of the world. You see, in these five words, he's telling the Egyptians that Ra, the sun god, did not create the world. Neither did Marduk or Tiamat or countless other supposed deities. And he's telling modern readers that you are not an accident, that you have a purpose, you have a creator. And therefore, you do not get to determine who you are. Your identity is not whatever you make it, whatever your deepest longings and feelings dictate to you. Furthermore, even for Christians who've thought deeply about the doctrine of creation, this still challenges our worldviews. It tells us God created. It goes on to say that God speaks, that he alone is wise enough to create, that his word alone should be the standard by which we measure all other truth claims. God is there and he is not silent, as Francis Schaeffer so famously said. So we should listen. His word should inform how we evaluate scientific findings. His word should inform even the science of knowing our epistemology. If that's too big a word for you, then go back to what I said a second ago. God's word alone should be the standard by which we evaluate all other truth claims. If you think, for example, creation in six 24 hour days is impossible because scientists say the earth is millions of years old, then God's word should challenge us to ask ourselves, how do I know what I know? Is the Bible informing my views or am I ignoring them? Same goes if you think that the six 24 hour day view of creation is obviously the only choice if that is somehow leading you away from scripture in science and the hard questions instead of leading you towards them. You see, all of us need to ask, is scripture informing and challenging our assumptions that we bring to the passage. I said more about different views of Genesis in adult Sunday school a few months ago. I'll just give you one personal note here. In seminary, one of the best classes I ever took was on Genesis 1 through 4. It was from a professor that I knew disagreed with me. I disagreed with him on creation. I learned a ton in the process, by the way, including how to disagree without being disagreeable. Don't, don't underrate that. But I learned to ask, why do I believe what I believe? Is the text informing my view? God is a God of infinite wisdom. And from the very beginning, God's word challenges our assumptions. It forces us to ask, why do I believe what I believe? Do I believe that God created? The Bible also challenges us to ask, why did God create the heavens and the earth? Why? That leads us to our second point this morning, that God is Trinitarian. He's Trinitarian. You see this a little bit at the beginning, a little bit at the end of the passage, but he's Trinitarian, which means he created out of love and abundance, not out of need, not out of deficiency. What do I mean? Why do I say that? Well, let's look at verses one through three together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. For centuries, Christians have believed that God is a holy trinity, a tri-unity, three in one, one in three, one God in three persons. And God the Father, though he's not called the Father here, he's seen very clearly in verse one, 
And then verse two shows us the spirit of God whom Christians come to call the Holy Spirit hovering over the face of the deep. And if you compare this passage to John one, one through five, excuse me, it's very clear that the word, the second person of the Trinity is here at creation. Now, can you clearly see God, the son? Can you see Jesus? Can you see the word, the second person of the Trinity in these three short verses? Maybe not by that name, certainly. Some would say you can't see him without New Testament goggles or glasses. But don't we have, as we look at scripture, don't we have New Testament goggles? Don't we see the Old Testament in light of the further revelation that comes years later? John 1 says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Also says all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is here at creation because there was never a time when he did not exist, when he was not. Now, why is all that important? Because it begins to answer this question of why, why God made the heavens and the earth and us. See, God has always existed again in in triunity. He's Trinitarian. He's a triune God. He's three in one. He's never existed in isolation from the other persons of the Godhead. God has never been lonely. The three persons of the Godhead exist in eternal fellowship with one another. They always have. And also God is independent of his creation. He doesn't need anything made by human hands, as he says, Paul says in Acts 17. So why would, why did he create? He didn't create because he needed anything. He created out of abundance. He created out of love. He created to bestow, to give his love, his favor on us, his creation. You see, even the doctrine of the Trinity, which is admittedly confusing, hard to understand at times, even it expresses the gospel, the good news of God's love for sinners like us. God is a creator. God is Trinitarian. The first one challenges us. The second one comforts us. And that leads to our third point. God is extraordinary. God is extraordinary. Don't read a passage like this and miss this. He's extraordinary in his creation. It appears almost effortless at times. So we should behold him and wonder. There's so many things in this passage as you go through that contribute to this idea of wonder, of amazement over God's exquisite brilliance. Just think about what you see in this passage, the things we take for granted. He speaks creation into existence. He speaks it. And he creates from nothing, no pre-existing material. He doesn't take clay and form it. No, he creates the clay. He spends three days ordering the chaos, then three more filling the emptiness. He creates kingdoms, then kings, realms, then rulers. The compactness of the language in this account contributes to the wonder as well. Language, which, by the way, is inspired by God, though not necessarily dictated word for word to Moses. God used the personality, the, 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 the abilities of Moses in that. But think about how compact the language is. Let there be, and there was, and it was so. There was evening and morning. There's all of that here. Then there's also this curious thing in verse 7. 
There's this water that's above the expanse or the sky. What, what is this? We admit we tread cautiously here. It appears there are waters above the heaven or the sky, a layer of water that in the upper, upper atmosphere that's no longer there. Believe this was an actual layer of water, not merely clouds or something like that. And if you're wondering why is it not there anymore, well, there's a worldwide flood in Genesis 7 that might help explain where all that water went. Again, I'm not a flood expert, but my point is simply this. Isn't it one more element of Genesis 1 that boggles your mind, that demands our attention? Now, speaking of boggling our minds, there's a well-known complication and apparent discrepancy. If you believe God created in six 24-hour days, you say, well, there's light on day one, but you don't get light bearers, a sun, moon, stars until day four. It invites questions. Did the order of creation really happen this way? Wouldn't Moses' original audience have known that you can't have light without a sun? Now, let's assume that those questions are simply coming from a place from people trying to wrestle with the hard questions of Scripture, understand the words that are in front of them in the most obvious sense. But are we right to assume that Moses' original readers would have said, you can't have light without sun? Is God bound by the laws of nature that he creates? Is it impossible for God to produce light without a sun? Isaiah 30 verse 26 says he can make light without a sun. And of course, the most glorious example comes at the other bookend of Scripture. Revelation 22, verse 4. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads, verse 5, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. If the point, as so many have said before, if the point of Genesis 1 as well as those first three verses of chapter two. If the point is to behold the wonder of this extraordinary, breathtaking God, then what better way than this? To show us a God who needs no sun to give light, a God who is light himself, whose divine presence radiates with effulgent splendor, as the rabbis of old explain this light in Genesis chapter one, verse three. Think about this. Do we see in Genesis 1-3, before the tragic fall of mankind into sin and misery, do we see the same divine presence shining, the same presence that we will bask in, the same presence that we will see when we arrive in the new heavens and new earth? I hope so. And I can't wait to see it. God is extraordinary. It should make us behold him in wonder. And you see, it's not merely the bigness and the grandness of it all that blows us away. There's also this. God is a detailed designer. Number four, God is a detailed designer. You see it primarily starting in verse 26, that you really see it throughout the whole chapter. <clears throat> God is a detailed designer. So our world is not an accident and neither are we. Our lives are not pointless. Again, why do I say that? Well, first, because there's something and not nothing. The earth is no longer formless and void. It's no longer tohu and bohu. It is formed and it's filled. Doesn't that show us God's detailed intentionality? Second, it's filled with plants, with creatures that fit their home. 
lights to rule over day and night, birds for the heavens, creeping animals for the earth, sea creatures for the sea, which contradicts an ancient myth that sea creatures were some kind of rulers or divinities. No, they were created as well by the king of kings. And of course, I left out one element of God's divine detailed design, didn't I? I did not mention the crown of creation. Think about this, day six, God has already made livestock and creeping things and beasts to roam the earth. He's already pronounced it good in verse 24. And so the previous five days, all those literary patterns might make us think after verse 24, when God says it's good, that he's going to stop there. But God keeps going. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God. He created him male and female. He created him. It's a great honor to be created in the image of the true and living God. It's a great honor. And something about that image is reflected in maleness and femaleness. Note that both sexes are equal in dignity and honor before their creator. We could say more about that. We will say more about that. But for now, God creates male and female, two sexes, not one and, and only two. Again, I'll say more on this next week when we discuss primarily these verses. For now, let me simply say this. God's biological design for man is not an accident. It's purposeful, just like all of his creation. So we should ask, does the way God designed me and my body say something about his purpose for me? And does he have a purpose for me? He mentions it in the very next verse. But again, God is a detailed designer. In our biological design, it's not an accident. It's in fact it reveals part of our purpose, our destiny, and all that should encourage us, encourage us, including the next thing we see. This should encourage us as well. Number five, we see that God is a delegator. God is a delegator. Verses 28 through 30. God is a delegator who gives us the honor and responsibility of exercising dominion over creation. He graciously esteems and honors his undeserving creation. Verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. <clears throat> he says the plants are for their food. He says they're to have dominion over all the other aspects of creation, the other living things. Mankind was meant to rule the earth with an iron fist. No, but with an eye towards God's glory as his stewards, his representatives on the earth. The applications, the implications of this are frankly unlimited. Pastor Matt, I'm at school all day and it's boring. I don't like it. I understand, but reading, writing, school, they're all opportunities to glorify God through excellence in learning, opportunities to honor the all-wise God who made us in his image. Maybe you think about your job. 
accounting. It's a topic my relatives are acquainted with, which has a reputation for being somewhat mundane but necessary. Isn't it an opportunity to have dominion over the financial resources entrusted to you that God has entrusted to us? Changing diapers. Is that something where we can show God's dominion? Isn't it a chance to glorify God by showing love and care for our children? Dominion over the diaper bag. Can I get an amen? As much dominion as can realistically be expected in that area anyway. And then teaching, preaching, evangelizing, discipling. There may also be some dignity in this activity. I'm being a little bit playful. I think there is some dignity in declaring God's glory to every corner of the earth. As Abraham Kuyper once said, there's not one square inch in all of creation over which King Jesus does not declare mine. God has delegated dominion over the earth to us. Shouldn't we be honored? Shouldn't we be humbled? As David said, who am I and what is my house? that you have brought me thus far? What is man that you are mindful of him? Who are we to deserve this honor, this esteem? God esteems us, not because we deserve it, but because he's a lavish and gracious God. Reminds me of a scene in an old TV show. The president has asked his personal aide to find him a, a new carving knife for Thanksgiving. And so Charlie, that aide, he finds several of them, but each time the president rejects them because of minor imperfections. And so Charlie is growing weary. By the way, he's a single young man who's lost both of his parents, including his mother, who was a cop shot in the line of duty. You might say that Thanksgiving for him has a bit less meaning, a bit more mourning, Charlie. So when the president rejects another top-of-the-line knife, Charlie asks, why is this knife so important anyway? And the president, who has three daughters but no sons, explains, you know, it's something you pass on so that you can say, my father gave this to me and his father gave it to him. And so Charlie is confused. He says, don't you already have a knife? I do, the president says, but I'm giving it away. And he hands it to Charlie and he tells him, oh, yes, it's kind of historic. It's, it's crafted by a certain Boston silversmith named Paul Revere. If you flunked American history, you may want to Google that name. <laughs> Charlie's surrogate father is delegated, is given to him a priceless gift, a great responsibility your heavenly father, by giving you dominion over his creation, has done something far greater. He's esteemed us. He's honored us. He wants us to make him proud by living up to our family name. That's the kind of gracious, lavish father that we have. And that leads us to our final point. Number six, God is, God is good. He's good. You see this in the final verses that we read. He's good. So he invites us to rest, to rest in him, to rest in his finished creation, to rest in the finished work of redemption, to rest in the greater Sabbath rest. And he saw that it was good. We read that over and over. And then man is created. Then God looks at everything and he says, behold, it was very good. 
And immediately thereafter, he rests. What else does scripture say about the almighty and rest? Well, interestingly, Adam and Eve's first sin, it's not really due to idleness, but it's due to disobedience. You might say they fail to rest in God's promises. And years later, Isaiah will call the people of God back to a proper rest in order to find salvation. Isaiah 30, 15, for thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. In Isaiah, it wasn't forbidden fruit. It was a forbidden foreign nation who was tempting them. And so God called them to find rest in him instead. Jesus, of course, would do the same. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And again, Hebrews chapter four, verse nine would say there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Something about God's rest is a symbol for all that we're seeking, for all that we've lost on this side of Eden. It's a symbol that there is something good, there's something peaceful, there's something desirable in the arms of Jesus, our Savior. But if we live east of Eden, it might be hard to understand all that. You see, we live in an era, an age, that breathes cynicism, that spews sarcasm right and left. And all we say in response is we're just keeping it real. We're just speaking the truth. We're surrounded by scoffers in this day and age. Scoffers who'd rather dismiss any hint of good news, plan for the worst so that we can just guard ourselves against the possibility of disappointment. And you see, depending on how deeply you've drunk that Kool-Aid, you might think I am hopelessly simple for talking about God's goodness. If so, my friends, the joke is on you. And you're right, it's not very funny because you're sitting on the winning lottery ticket and you're so scared of change that you can't even cash it in. You see, what's the only hope for someone who lives in a cynical, sarcastic, hopelessly scoffing age. What's the only hope for someone like that? Isn't it the God who has everything, who needs nothing from you, who offers everything to you? If you would simply rest in him and receive his goodness. You see, this is not a joke. This is not a test. There is no punchline. There are no pranks around the corner. This is the God who made all things very good until man messed them up and he's offering you a reset, a ticket back to paradise. I'll make it very simple. I'll quote a children's song. Come to me, walk with me, learn the rhythms of my grace. Come to me, I have all you need. Learn to rest even while you are awake. You see, the God of sheer goodness is calling and he doesn't have any tricks up his sleeve. But how do you know that this is real, this is true, and this is available to you? Come and see. It's the only way. Come and see and come and rest in his goodness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are good and what you do is good. Father, we have a hard time believing in pure, unadulterated goodness.
because we live in a fallen world and we have seen the other side. We have seen behind the curtain. We know that the great and powerful Oz is but a myth. Would you remind us that our great and powerful God is not a myth. He is real. He is here. He is not silent. And he has given good things to us and he has more good things in store. If we would only taste and see that God is good, if we would only rest in his goodness and receive it from him. Father, be with us. Help us to turn from our sin and help us turn to a good and gracious Savior. We ask all this in your gracious name. Amen.